Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Today our focus is on verse 5 and verse 6. Now please note that it is God's providence that brings us to this passage today. Not a congregational meeting, not uh, the need for more funds or anything of that nature. Uh, it is simply the providence of God that has led us to verses 5 and 6 as we work our way through this wonderful uh, Christ-centered sermon. In fact, this last chapter really is organized in, the, in, in a way that uh, lists a litany of exhortations uh, that really would help us, if followed, to live uh, successfully, you might say, or in harmony as a community of believers, but also would allow us to be the salt and light that we are to be in the world if we would follow these last comments by the preacher in Hebrews in chapter 13. You remember the chapter starts with an exhortation to practice brotherly love in the body of believers. It moves on to uh, encourage us and command us to practice hospitality to the larger body of Christ. And then ultimately to practice sympathy for those who are in Christ and are suffering, are persecuted because they profess Christ to the world. Then verse 4 speaks particularly of marriage and the importance of cherishing and protecting marriage and sexual purity and the importance of it in the life of the church and its witness before the world. Really, these two things, brotherly love or interpersonal relationships and then marital strength and purity, uh, capture so much of what is still needed today, would we not agree? And then today, the issue of contentment as it relates to money and material things. Very, very practical exhortations in this last uh, chapter of this wonderful Christ-centered sermon. So hear now God's word, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from money, from, from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, the world is full of people who are making a good living, that's for sure, but living poor lives. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your honesty with us as your children, for the clarity of your word in this point, even when it strikes against the idols of our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be shaped and molded by what your word says, that we would be submissive to it, Lord, so that you might receive glory. I pray that you would free us from the love of money, Lord, where that seeks to attack us, to grab us, to enslave us. I pray that we would be honest, Lord, before you, that we would be freed from this, that we could serve you, bring glory to you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. These first verses of Hebrews 13 certainly cover these key areas of our lives, interpersonal relationships, marital strength and purity, and now the verses before us, the matter of contentment as it relates to money and material things. Exceedingly practical stuff. But let's first consider what the text so plainly says so that we can then together see how this applies particularly to us in this day. The verse begins, verse 5, with keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. So there are two exhortations wrapped up in this opening phrase. Keep your life free from love of money and then be content with what you have. In this, we should expect coincides well with the New Testament's teaching. 1 Timothy 6, the young pastor receiving a letter from Paul. 1 Timothy 6, 6, Paul writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Just a few verses later, Paul writing to Timothy says, But those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we have this twofold exhortation to be free from the love of money and to be content. Keep your life free from the love of money. Literally means make sure that your manner of life is not showing devotion to money and the things that they can acquire, material things. Don't be devoted. Don't be depending on money. Don't gain your satisfaction from money. Don't find that it is your security, money, or the things that it can provide. To be content literally means to be satisfied with something, to be satisfied with what you have been given. To be free from the love of money, to be satisfied, to be content. Is this a problem for you? Is contentment a problem for you? Are you satisfied with what you have? I think it's a a raging problem for us in our day. Every one of us is faced with this temptation or in the midst of worshiping this idol. There's a story of a man who became envious of his friends because they had larger and more luxurious homes. So he listed his house with a real estate agent, planning to sell it and to purchase a more impressive home. Shortly afterward, as he was reading the classified section of the newspaper, he saw an ad for a house that seemed just right. He promptly called his realtor and said, a house described in today's paper is exactly what I'm looking for. I would like to go through it as soon as possible. The agent asked him several questions about it. Then after a pause, replied, but sir, that's your house you're describing. (laughs) Contentment. Are you content? Are you content as the text of scripture here entreats us? I want to form this message by asking you a few diagnostic questions. First of all, what are you depending on? Secondly, how do you define security? Thirdly, what bring, things bring you satisfaction? What brings you satisfaction? Obviously, the text says simply contentment comes from dependence on God. You don't have to be a scholar to see what the basic message is. That true contentment, the true source of contentment, is God and dependence upon him. But why is it so difficult to attain? Why are so many people chasing after bigger, better, upsize, constantly moving because they're not content with what they have? What are you depending on? How do you define security? What brings you satisfaction? The verse says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and this comes from Deuteronomy, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it comes in many other forms throughout the scriptures. Also a quote from scripture. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What we can say negatively for for sure from these two brief verses is first of all, don't depend on money or the things it can acquire because in and of themselves, they cannot be depended upon. They're not trustworthy in that way. Secondly, don't expect to gain security through money or things it can acquire because in themselves they cannot be relied upon for such weighty things and such a weighty thing as security. Thirdly, don't think that money or the things that it can acquire will really ultimately bring you satisfaction. If that's your mindset, when will enough ever be enough? When will the new thing become the old thing and the need for another new thing be there? So dependence, security, 
satisfaction. These things do not come from money or the things that money can buy. Instead, the verses are saying positively, depend on God. He's the one who says he'll never leave you, forsake you. Money makes no boast. The things that money buys makes no boast. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And his history and his track record and his faithfulness prove that he is true. Money and possessions surely can and do leave and forsake. Second, positively, find your security in God, the text says. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's never going to go in Christ. Furthermore, he promises to be your helper, it says. He will give you safety and true security for eternal value, not just temporary gain. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the mindset of the one who trusts in God. Money and possessions surely cannot give real security. And those things, when we trust in them, will be desperately disappointed. The text gives us a twofold command to be free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. Let's dig a little deeper in our time together, and that's how your outline is laid out. First of all, I ask you the question, what are you, brother, what are you, sister, depending on today? Is it money or possessions or stuff? Do you view money as some kind of eternal thing to be dependent on? Now, I know you're too smart a group to really think that there's something eternal about money itself. But you have to admit, we do live that way. Like the things we get, we're so satisfied with them when they come. And we depend upon them and think as though they're not going to get old. Even though we know intellectually and logically that is not the case, we still kind of live in the now so much that we almost attribute a certain eternal significance or characteristic to that which can be bought with money or money itself. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 7, again, a wonderful warning to this young pastor. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, Timothy. For if we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we brought nothing in, we could take nothing out. There is nothing eternally significant about money or the things it can buy in and of themselves. We have to recognize this as true, so we stop depending. And to ask yourself uh, these questions will further illustrate as to whether you have this uh, challenge or problem in your life. If, are you thinking right now, if all else fails, whatever goes on in the economy or whatever, I'll still have my money, or I'll still have the stuff I have, or my things. I could depend on those things. You know, that kind of Y2K thing that went on where, well, I've got my generator in my chicken coop, and so I'm okay, and I depend on it. Now, there's godly planning, don't get me wrong, but the idea that there's this dependence on things like that totally confesses against the fact that it's God who is your helper. He's the one who provides. Yes, make godly plans, but don't depend on them to be your salvation. That's the point. Are we depending on things? In a crisis, I can buy my way out, I'm sure. Or how about this? Because undoubtedly, when you ever hear a sermon like this, people that don't have or don't have as much will think, uh, well, this is good for the rich people to hear. But the fact is, if you're anxious today over money, you're suffering from a love of money. Because you think that if you only had more, your life wouldn't be as hard. If you only had more, then I wouldn't have this problem. Well, the reason why I have this trouble in my life is because I don't have. That's a love of money. Because you think money is something you can depend on to change your life's complexion. So it applies to all of us, whether we have much or have little. Do we depend on it for our life? The text says to depend on God. And this is not meant to be trite. This is not meant to be something you say, be warm, be fed, and go. It's truthfully the cornerstone of contentment is to depend on the Lord's promises to you. Depend on him. That's why it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I get uh, statements from the bank every, every month. I open it up, and it's pretty getting easier and easier to read. I can even read it online. 
Never, though, have I ever opened up my statement. And I've never read on the bottom from Hillcrest Bank or from Capital Federal. I've never read, I will never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> it's never said it. I've not, never gotten into my truck that I still owe money on and heard it whisper to me, Tony, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm your helper. I will give you strength. Never heard that. Truck's never said that to me. I have a credit card. Well, I don't. Actually, my wife carries a credit card. There's a reason for that. At any rate, I've never heard the credit card whisper to us, you can trust me. I will never leave you or forsake you. We laugh, but we act just like we trust it, like we depend on it, like it'll be there for us. If money could talk, it'd say, don't trust me. I'm fleeting. But yet we put it and our dependence into it. When other things fade and fail, God's love for us in Christ never fails. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will never leave you or forsake you, it says. Secondly, how do you define security? How do you define security? Is it your job? Is it your bank account, your retirement plan? Think about this. Uh, we teach our kids often, and it's, this is not a bad thought in totality, that we want them to have a good job so they have security. That's what we mean oftentimes, prestige, security. So we want them to do thus and so accordingly. It always dismays uh, me when I learn that the number one reason, and this has not changed in the last 50 years for sure, uh, that the number one reason why people do not pursue vocational ministry careers, missions in particular, number one reason, you know why it is? Why it is? Because parents discourage them from doing so. And when I went to Moody Bible Institute, that was a common refrain I heard from fellow students. My parents, you know, they're not really happy about me being here. Uh, they'll smile about it, but ultimately, what is their concern? That their kids won't have security. And what they're saying is, is that God's calling in your life is not secure. But if you do this, if you be this or be that, then that will be secure. Then you can do whatever you want for God, you'll hear people say. Think about what we're saying, that our security is found in what we do as a job or how we answer God's call and vocation. Perhaps you might think that uh, security is based on the amount that you see on your bank account statement every month. Well, have you ever really analyzed, and I try not to analyze it too much, how secure is the bank? You know, it's insured, right? Well, you know, people thought that back in the 20s. And I know there are safeguards now that economically are different than they were then. But really, ultimately, it's, the dollar bill is a promise. It's what it is. It's going to be backed up. It, don't put too much faith in that. I mean, I, I praise God we live in this country, but we have gotten way too dependent on our system of finances, where we find security in the dollars we have or in the things that dollars have bought. A lot of people were secure for a lot of, uh, in those thoughts, rich, rich people, that when the stock market crashed, their life's complexion changed completely. You know, we experience a little bit of, the, a little bit of that here. I remember when a local company had, uh, severely dropped in its stocks, I talked to folks who were paper millionaires who went down to very little as a result of a stock going from $38 to $6. Okay, those are little glimpses of the reality of the situation. It's not nearly as secure as we think it is or like to believe it is. So if your security is in it, you could see how your life would be totally enslaved to a love of money. Think about social security. I'm no economist, but you and I both know that if things go the way they're going, there's no way that there will be enough money left, just left untouched for any of us who are under 40. It's not going to happen. Uh, they're going to have to raise the age or raise the amount of tax they charge, and that's probably what will happen. But security is a joke when we attach it to anything human. 
Security can only be found in the one who can say with credibility, I will never leave you, forsake you. God's promises present security. I will build my church. Follow me. Take up my yoke. Those are promises we can trust. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Finally, the question to ask is, what brings you satisfaction? Is it the praise from others that you might receive for your position, your possessions, whatever it is, your bank statements? Do you enjoy the recognition that comes from wealth, the perks that might come because you are wealthy? Are you the kind of person that needs to be satisfied by new things? You know, I have a new thing, and I need another new thing because after three years, it's not new anymore, and I have to keep looking for the next new thing. Just knowing in your mind how much you have, does that bring satisfaction? You know what it reminds me? of the child who received the toy that they longed for for weeks, if not months, before Christmas came. Christmas is in December, and by the time the garage shells in May, it has a 50-cent sticker on it out in the garage sale. That happens a lot. We're not much different as adults. The toys we have, the things we have, it's not that new things are bad. It's that we are trying to find satisfaction in them. That's the issue. Is God using you for his glory in all spheres of life? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I want to draw some important, important, crucial applications. I went through Crown Ministries small group study over a year ago. Pastor Nathan and I went so that we could learn how to lead the study. I had known theologically the different uh, concepts and so forth, had always tried to follow them uh, uh, in my life and the way I uh, handled my own finances. But I never had realized how thorough the scriptures are in this area. Over 2,300 verses on how to handle money and possessions in the Bible. And you can understand why. But three key principles we learned at Crown, or three key facts, are these. First, how we handle money influences our fellowship with the Lord. Secondly, possessions compete with the Lord for a first place in our lives. And this verse speaks to that exactly. You see, if you're trusting in, in possessions or in money, then you're not trusting in God to that degree. To the degree you're indebted, and the degree you're enslaved to that, that's the degree that you're not trusting in God. And so miss out on some of the great blessings of life. In a simpler day, I remember when I was going through college, and at, at Moody we had to, you can get into a payment plan where you pay every month and you go up and pay your bill and, uh, before online paying and so forth. And I would literally work at the school. They'd give me my check, and I would go up with my check, and whatever was left I'd try to, to eat my ramen noodles with, and that's what I did. And I was constantly being short in the first two years, and he'd always give me a little more time, but I'd always got everything paid before the end of the semester. However, the third year, someone else, some accountant came in and cracked down and said, if students are, we just have to hold the line a little harder. If you cannot pay your bill on this due date, then you have to disenroll the, the following Monday. And so I get paid on a Thursday. Friday, I go up to pay. Or maybe it was the same day. I just remember getting my check. I never saw any of it myself yet. I bring it up to the registrar to explain I'm 60 bucks short. There's no way I can come up with it, but I can come up with it if I do this odd job and I can get it the next week. And I remember my life was simple. I didn't have credit cards. I had no other debt. I had, just was trying to pay my bill. And I remember thinking to the Lord, uh, how are these other students able to do this? And many of them were there on loans. You know, they borrowed money and they're able to go in that way. And I'm not saying all educational debt is wrong. I'm saying a lot of it is, is very poor choice. I, I, you know, pastors aren't going out in, in making, you know, salaries that can pay back those kinds of debts. And so I saw these people doing this, and I kind of got this, this, why is it they could pay? And they seemed to be so comfortable. And here I am just working, working, not able to pay. Well, the fact that it worked that way allowed the Lord to show me something I wouldn't have seen any other way. 
So the lady told me, you're going to have to disenroll, Tony. I'm sorry, this is our new policy. So I walked out, got on the elevator, got down to the first floor. The elevator opened up, and a guy got onto the elevator, and he had an envelope that you get in a bank, and it had money, and I could see that. And he said, uh, are you a student here? I said, yes. He says, do you need money for your school bill? I said, I do, as a matter of fact. I mean, I literally just come out of this lady's office. And he hands me the, the thing and steps back off the elevator. Didn't go up, travel with me or anything. Steps off the elevator. I look in the envelope. I'm still staying in the elevator. Three $20 bills, $60 exactly. The I, so I press the third floor again. I go back up. I never got off the elevator. I then step off the elevator on the third floor, walk back to the registrar, and hand her the $60 bill, the $60. And she said, who did you rob to get this money? How would you get this? And she was half joking, but she knew something must have happened. I said, you're not going to believe this. But this person, this guy, I don't know, who did, who did? I still, I have no idea. I never seen the guy again, and I worked. I was cleaning at the time. That's I was actually working when I had gone up to, to pay her. The 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 point. I, the reason is not a health and wealth message. And if you do this, God will give you this. It's simply to say that because there was a certain simplicity at that time of my life, there and God was working to see me through that educational process. That simplicity allowed for an opportunity to see God provide miraculously. In my view, it's only sixty bucks. We may think. And it's ever since made me think differently about how I'll provide for whatever vision he gives us to do. It's, it's shaped me, it's changed me, that I lose that. And I've lost that even to a degree as I've gotten older and there's more complexities in my life financially and so forth. Uh, and it's, you, you long for the simplicity that comes from that kind of experience. And I would say to you that possessions themselves compete with the Lord for first place in our lives. And that's one example of how that is so. I would give you this encouragement then. Uh, in applying, I'm not just going to tell you, be content. I want to give you some ways in which you can work this out in your own life according to God's word. I would say before I give you these that I, it is my desire that every family, every family at Redeemer would go through the Crown Group or the Crown Small Group study at some point. If you don't believe me, ask any of the couples that have gone through it and they will tell you. I've never seen a couple go through and say, boy, that was a waste of time or anything short of that totally changed my mindset. I mean, it's always that reaction. Uh, so Please consider that next time, and I think in the fall we'll have at least two groups available. But very simply, start with this, brothers and sisters. The first baseline principle is that God owns it all. We are stewards of his things. A litmus test for right thinking is, do you refer to money as your money, and you are giving a gift, or you are giving from your money? Uh, this can be innocent, but it evidences the idea that you think the money you have has been earned by you, not entrusted to you by God as a stewardship. So if you think it's your money, that would be the first thing to check with Scripture. It's God owns it all. You're a steward of those things to use for his glory. Now it's altogether different. You're a steward of those things. He may have given you great abilities, great uh, uh, capabilities in making a lot of money, but it's his money that he's entrusting you with to do with it that which brings glory to him. David, after uh, bringing in a collection of just what would be equivalent of billions of dollars today to build the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and so forth. He prays this wonderful prayer that will always remind us that God owns it all and that we are the stewards of his things. David says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. The road to being freed from the love of money and to be content starts with recognizing God's sovereignty over everything. He owns it all. Secondly is this recollection or this uh, realization. Debt is a form of slavery 
and is to be avoided, period. I, oh, that hurts, doesn't it? It hurts me too. Uh, but that's what the scripture says. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave to the lender. I'm not saying that all forms of debt are bad. Some are, take the form of obligation. If you can sell what you have, and I say sell, not what you think it's worth. If I could turn around and sell my truck, for instance, for what it's worth or more, which I can, but I still probably do it different if I had to buy it again, but that's more of an obligation than it is a debt. I could sell it immediately and pay it off. Same with our land or what we're doing to build this. To build this. The land is really going to be double worth what we're going to have as indebtedness. So those are some forms in which you can, that's why we say a house is a, good, is a good investment, if you will. However, things like cars usually, stuff on credit cards, consumer goods that immediately start depreciating the moment you buy them, you know, uh, you know the shoes that wore out long after you're still carrying a balance on your card, those are things that enslave us for sure. All debt should be avoided, but some is just outright a form of slavery that will cause us to grow distant and actually bring strain in our relationship with the Lord because we're striving after serving that debt. Uh, let's face it, we live in a day where any one of us can get a loan for pretty much whatever we want. In fact, a funny, uh, funny saying goes that the only reason a great many American families don't own an elephant is that they have never been offered an elephant for a dollar down in, in easy weekly payments. It's probably true. Debt is a form of slavery and is to be avoided. God owns it all. And then the third principle that you have to enact in your life is you need to begin tithing immediately. Bring your money to the storehouse. Why do you say that's so important? It's important because these things together, when we give the, the bare minimum of what God requires, which is the tithe, and we are constantly trying to strive after paying down debt or not getting into debt, and we're remembering it's all God's, when those three things happen, that will then equal your standard of living. That's how you determine your standard of living, not what Johnson County's standard of living is. Not what your neighbor's standard of living is. Not what your brother's or your sister's. It's when you've been faithful in these things, what's left, that's what determines your standard of living. And your sufficiency comes from following God's promise, not comparing with how your next-door neighbor just bought this vehicle or is going to upgrade this or just moved out to live in a bigger neighborhood. That's the problem. Our standard of living is based on what we think the American dream is. The American dream used to be just to own something. Now it's to keep owning something bigger and better. And what we do when we follow these biblical principles is we define our standard of living based on what God has given us. And you'll find it's still great. It's still great. In fact, Chesterton says there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And by following these principles, we'll learn to be content with what God has given. I've discovered in my life when I'm not in debt, when I don't owe, um, I am much more at peace than when I have a bunch of stuff but owe on it. There is no comparison. No comparison. And so, this is part of the road to freeing yourself from the love of money. I'll give you three simple words if you don't remember all that. Remember this. Give, save, live. Give, save, live. We usually do it the other way. First thing, you give, what, you give the minimum of what you're supposed to give, which is the tithe. Then save money to be prudent about the money you have. And then live off the rest. I believe that reflects the Bible's teaching on it. What do we do, though? The total opposite, isn't it? We live, then we save, then if we have any less, we, left, we give. That's totally the Bible turned upside down. And it's why we're enslaved in so many ways. Heavy stuff. Well, these last two sermons have been heavy, I might say. But I would like you to, for a moment, positively imagine the impact that we could have on this city. Just Redeemer, the city, this country, and this world, if we are freed from the love of money to trust God solely. First of all, I would submit to you most simply, the testimony of our lives would glorify Christ and draw people to him. What, what do you mean? I mean that 
if we would just individually as households agree that there is a certain, you know, define our standard of living based on the principles I just spoke of and say this is enough. And I'm not saying live in poverty. I'm not saying even don't enjoy some things. I'm just simply saying this is enough. And as God blesses you, you give more and more of that away or you do more and more outside of yourself with it. And people look at you, especially your fellow workers, for those of you in these kind of environments, why isn't that so-and-so doesn't get a better house? We all have a better house now. Uh, because that's what they do in the culture. You know, you just keep moving up. As you get a new promotion, you get, a new, you get new stuff. And I would submit to you that in this culture especially, if Christians would just live differently than that and just simply show satisfaction with the wonderful things they have, that alone would speak volumes to a watching world that would make them wonder, what is the set of values these people have? Who are they trusting for this? Who are they trying to impress? So very simply, just these kinds of principles will be a testimony to the world around us. But most probably... What gets me most excited is really the unfathomable resources that would be unleashed to execute the mission and vision that God has given our church, just what we spoke about in the congregational meeting. Let me give you the numbers, and I'm not a math person, as most people know. We have a little over 100 families at Redeemer, over some, some like 350 individuals on our membership rolls. Not including the special building gifts that we've received recently in these last couple years, we, we take in, we've taken in just a little over 400000 almost $450,000 a year just in general giving. Now, I, don't, I have no idea who gives what, brothers and sisters, just so you know. I never want to know, and no pastors and elders shouldn't even know. I'm just telling you that the treasurer can verify that a third of that comes from two or three different sources. So that means, let's say 350000 or let's say 300000 is left. That means out of 100 households that we're on average giving as a household $3,000 a year as a household. Now, do any of us believe that Johnson County's average income is $30,000 a year? Some may. Maybe that's where some people are. But I would venture a bet it's twice to three times as much of that for household. So if people would just tithe in our church, we would double, if not triple, how much money we take in for kingdom sources. And I hope the leaders have at least proved to you that we don't use money for anything but ministry and kingdom purposes. The building and things like that are, are hurdles to get over and tools that are necessary that emphasize our core values, but their core values are the ministries that happen in them. So I would submit to you that's just an exciting thing is if we would just be free to the love of money and do the basics, we would see a tripling almost in how much money the church takes in for kingdom use. Now, that's just tithing. Imagine if every family reduced their personal debt and gave half of that, what they've been paying down debt with, to the church or to some other kingdom enterprise. It could be other than, not, we're not the only ones helping build the kingdom. So beyond the tithe, and you had this money that was being used to pay down debt. The average U.S. household pays $500 to $1,000 per month on consumer-related debt, cars, credit cards, and educational kind of loans. Uh, let's just say $750 is the average in our church, that $750 a month each household is paying towards consumer debt. If each family committed to paying that off and giving half to kingdom work, redeemer or otherwise, that would be $325 a month you would have freed up to give. That's $3,900 per year to kingdom work. 3,900 times 100 members is $390,000. We would double our current budget just if people paid down their own personal debts. Four times what we take in now is not out of the question. It is not out of the question at all, as we are freed by the Lord from the love of money. Isn't that ironic? Being freed from the love of money actually produces more resources for the kingdom. Finally, I think that this, in an exciting way, can lead us to a God-empowered boldness that would compel us to go to the ends of the earth for Christ and his glory. Buried in this text that we've studied is this idea that we say after this, what can man do to us? 
If God provides all this, what can man do to me? That's what it says in Hebrews 13, verse 6. We'd be so empowered that it is God in whom we trust that we would go anywhere he would send us and not count the cost. We would not count the cost in, in monetary terms or in what it takes to go there. We'd go because we believe he'd provide that. And you, you and I both know, can you imagine if we even just doubled what we take in, how much more we could be doing by way of mobilizing missionaries and the outreach we can have? Just even doubling what we take in. David Livingstone wrote in his journal, the great missionary to Africa, he said, I place no value on anything I have or may possess, except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interest of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept, only as by giving or keeping, keeping it, I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and or eternity. He saw everything as kingdom related, everything down to what he would pay for his kids to what he would give, everything to be kingdom related. A lot here, and it can be heavy, but I want to encourage you pastorally that I do think it's an idol of our day that's holding many of us back in our walk with the Lord. I want to close with this picture that maybe will help you understand our relationship with the Lord as it relates to the things he's given us to be stewards over. I try to spend individual time with each of my sons because sometimes when there are three in a group, it's hard to, to kind of celebrate each of them individually. So Jordan had just turned three years old, and he was at the age, or close to three, where he's starting to really have some neat dialogue uh, with me. So I took him to Steak and Shake, like I've tried to take the other boys, and I bought him uh, a milkshake. And it wasn't one of those little baby-sized ones. I got him the big one. Now, I know full well he can't eat the big one. Uh, he's still at the stage in his life where he only eats until he's full. Can you imagine that? He only eats until he's full. So anyways, he has this huge milkshake in front of him, and there's no way he can eat it. But part of it, the illustration to him is, and I just sat there with nothing. I wanted him to have that milkshake so he can eat it and just feel special. Like, man, he knows he's not going to be able to finish this thing, and he did. You had to see the look on his face. I mean, he's just smiling, and it's mine, mine. I said, it's yours. You can have it. You can have it. And I know the waitress was thinking that, he, that I knew he wouldn't be able to finish it, and I would be able to help him. But truthfully, I just wanted him to feel lavished upon. So he had this, and he gets down past the whipped cream layer, maybe eats the cherry, barely tops the surface. He looks at me. He pushes it to me. He wants me to have a little. I said, no, Jordan, it's for you. You have it. He takes it back. He looks like he feels a little guilty. He pushes it back to me. And, you know, a little three-year-old with a slobbery mouth and all over his straw, and he pushes it back to me. I'm like, okay. And I take a little sip and give it. He was real satisfied. Give it back to him. He drank a little more. Keep pushing. It was like this thing, back and forth, back and forth. Well, I said, no, I want you to have it. Brothers and sisters, I would say that is what God has done for us. He's given us this huge thing, more than we could ever, ever use in a lifetime. And he's saying it's for you. Can't we just have the spirit of giving back to him, saying, please, you have some. I want you to have some. This is yours. You gave it. I couldn't get this on my own. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how it should be with the Lord? But here's an ugly picture. What if Jordan was drinking that milkshake, and I just went out to grab a little bit and just have a sip, and he grabbed it away from me and moved it away and said, you can't have any. What does that even make you feel like? I could buy him all the ice cream there is there, probably. And he won't let me have a sip? I think that's how we act with God oftentimes, as it relates to the things he's given us to be stewards over. I want to close by reading these verses and then praying. These verses are written by Paul. He's been on every end of the spectrum in his life. And he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have, revi you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Martin Luther once said, and we agree as a body, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Lord, we long to willingly place it all in your hands for your glory. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnal.